Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a Senior Fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to talk about what happened in 1866, or specifically, how the failure of one bank in London led to a global collapse in trade finance, and how that had big and long-term effects on trade. We'll be joined by a very special guest. My name is Chinzi Xu, and I'm an assistant professor of finance at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. Chenzi has a really cool paper titled Reshaping Global Trade, the Immediate and Long-Run Effects of Bank Failures. It has already won a bunch of awards, including the Economic History New Researcher Prize. And while I'm on the topic, why doesn't someone start a trade podcast award? Let's start with some Trade Finance 101. So suppose you're involved in international trade, you're making something and you're selling it somewhere overseas. But you've got a problem. You have to buy all of the, the the raw materials, the inputs. You've got to pay your workers. You've got to do all that stuff right now. But the importer only wants to pay you when they've actually got the finished product. And that is sometime off into the future after you've made the thing and shipped it halfway around the world. Trade finance, it helps to fill that timing gap. It's a sort of credit that allows the exporter to buy all the inputs they need. And when then the exporter gets paid by the importer, the exporter can then repay its loan. Our first question for Chansey was, was where exporters get this trade finance from? When it's not available from the firms directly, they can get it from banks. And banks are particularly well-suited for providing this funding because they operate locally. So they'll operate where the exporters are, and so they have a much better sense of the exporter's risk. And in addition, they can also often take collateral. It's a long-standing relationship. And so the bank is going to be much more willing to lend to these exporting firms rather than the buyer who's thousands of miles away. So it seems intuitive that the availability of this finance would be super important for trade. So what are the problems when trying to pin down that relationship? In the recent financial crisis, what you see is that the amount of lending that banks did collapsed. At the same time, we also see a large contraction in international trade flows. So there's a strong correlation. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's a causal relationship because it could just be the case that demand for goods dropped. And so these firms are exporting less. And because they don't need as much financing, the banks are providing less of it. So just because these two variables are going in the same direction doesn't mean that one causes the other necessarily. Let's get into the weeds of your research then. And so you're going to look at a historical example of of when exporters lost access to to trade finance. And you're going to look at, at that happening in 1866. So before we get into exactly what happened in, in 1866, set the scene. So what was trade like back then? How was it financed? So 1866 is the cusp of what was now known as the first age of globalization when international trade just really exploded. This was a world that was dominated by commodities trade, which is to say raw commodity goods, 
being shipped around the world in wooden boats and steamships. So the goods that were being traded were things like raw inputs for manufactured goods. So for instance, cotton would be shipped from the Americas and Egypt to Britain to be produced into cloth. But then there were also a lot of goods like coffee and tea and sugar that were just consumer goods. So a lot of the trade was coming out of countries that had fairly undeveloped financial markets and countries where you know, it's going to be quite difficult to legally enforce contracts. And so trade finance from banks was really developed in the earlier to middle part of the 19th century as a way to grease the wheels for these sorts of products where, you know, Europeans really demanded them. And so where was this trade finance coming from? London was completely dominant in this period. So London's banks, which operated in cities around the world, provided, on average, based on my calculations, over 90% of the trade credit in any given city. And these were banks that went to places where there was international trade. So they operated in countries that accounted for 98% of the value of world exports during this period. But you just said that the it tended to be the banks that were operating in the export market. So how how did London manage to, to give credit to exporters in, in Egypt or the Americas? These British banks were headquartered in London, and they borrowed from savers in London who bought shares or saved their deposits with these banks. But then they set up subsidiaries in cities around the world. And they used the money that they'd raised in London and lent it abroad in those subsidiaries. And am I also right that a lot of this bank financing that these London banks were providing was actually financing trade between third countries? So it wasn't necessarily trade involving the UK? Yes. So they might be financing trade between, say, India and China. The pound sterling became the international currency. And so when countries wanted to trade goods, they often needed to do it in pounds. And so the British banks had an easy market in a lot of these uh, places where they could provide lending in the currency that these exporters needed to be using anyways. So from what you said, it sounds like the rest of the world is very dependent on the supply of credit from London. You said 90, over 90% of the trade finance is coming from London for these, for these port cities. But that also must mean that it's very vulnerable to a cut in supply of, of that credit. So tell us what happened in 1866. So in 1866, there was the biggest banking crisis of the century. There was a firm known as Overend and Gurney that was a banker's bank that was in London. And Overend and Gurney lent to all the other banks, but it rather unexpectedly failed one day. And when it did that, the markets completely panicked and thought that the entire banking sector was going under. And so depositors ran on all of their banks. And when the chaos died down, it turned out that 12% of these banks had completely failed during this crisis. Was this a big scandal at the time? 
Overin and Gurney was actually considered one of the most prestigious and well-known firms in the city of London. It had built up its reputation over many generations. And what had actually happened was that in the 1860s, the partners of the firm changed and the sons of the old partners took over the firm. But they really had no interest in running the day-to-day operations. And so they essentially let the firm be run by some friends who completely mismanaged the funds. So actually, in 1865, this is the year before the crisis, the firm faced bankruptcy. They knew that they were in a really bad place. But instead of closing and declaring bankruptcy, they decided to go public with the firm. So they issued shares, and when they did this, they printed these prospectuses that completely buried the real state of affairs. All it said was that this new firm is going to absorb the business of this old firm. And obviously, everyone knew that the old firm was very reputable. So the financial papers said, you know, we expect that this new firm will do as well for its shareholders as it has done for its partners for all these generations. So then when less than nine months later, this new firm declared bankruptcy, everyone thought that it was because there was something really, really bad going on in the markets. Okay, so that sounds like very bad news for the, for the shareholders, but why is it useful for economists like you? The nice thing about this setting is that we have banks that fail in London, but the particular banks that failed are operating in different places around the world. So in a given city, we might see that two out of the five British banks have failed. In another city, maybe only one. In another city, maybe all five of them. And so locations, cities or countries, are different in how much they depended on the banks that happened to have failed in London. So in other studies, you're worried that actually banks might be supplying less credit because it's not being demanded as much. But in this case, there's a kind of clean shock to the supply of credit. And so then you can look at its effects without worrying that actually something else is causing what you see. Exactly. Overin and Gurney was a domestic firm. It didn't lend abroad. It didn't provide trade credit. Strictly speaking, it wasn't even supposed to lend to firms. So it just is the trigger for a lot of banks failing that did provide trade credit around the world. So we've got this big bank failure. What's the key thing that you're going to examine to look at the impact of this bank failure of 1866 on activity in these in these ports around the world? So I'm going to measure how much different ports around the world were exposed to banks that failed. So it's a measurement of, say, in Buenos Aires, 20% of the banks that provided credit to exporters in Buenos Aires failed relative to, say, Valparaiso, where 80% failed. So now what I'm going to do is compare exports from those cities. And so basically you're looking to see whether those more exposed cities are going to export less than places that were less exposed. So did this cut in supply of credit hurt exports? So what do you find? So places that lost all access to British bank funding saw their exports drop by 68% in the post-crisis year relative to the previous year. Wow, that's a big effect. 
Yes, it is a very large effect, and it's actually much bigger than what's been found in the modern literature. And I think this makes sense for a couple of reasons. One is that the crisis that I look at is a case where banks completely fail, which is a much more extreme event than what other people have studied, which is declines in bank health. Another reason is that historically, it's just a lot harder to find a replacement for your bank if the one that you depended on went under, and it's a lot harder to establish uh, new relationships with your buyers. So you find evidence of these effects. Nowadays, you would have central banks that would be stepping in around the world to help deal with a problem like this. Why didn't that happen in 1866? This is a really interesting institutional context historically because central banks in developing countries basically didn't exist. And insofar as central banks existed more broadly, they didn't see it as their role to intervene in the macroeconomy. The Bank of England did intervene to stabilize its own domestic banking sector, but this was a very limited intervention. And despite the intervention, a lot of banks still failed. So so that's the short run effect and and it looks bad. We have these big big trade effects. But you go on to look at the long run effects of this. So, you know, one might expect maybe that other banks would would step in and perhaps provide the financing that those London-based institutions were providing or even other London institutions might might, you know, go in and and replace those functions. So how do you look at the long run and and what do you find? So you're exactly right that you would expect other banks to step in once the ones that existed failed. And actually, I do see that over the course of five years, you see a lot of banks come in to the places that had very large exposures to British bank failures. Despite the fact that it looks like the financial sector is recovering in those places and quite quickly, I still find that there are very long-term effects on the patterns of international trade. And what I mean by that is exporters that were very exposed to these bank failures systematically export less in the decades afterward. And if we look at particular buyers, so this is, say, France in 1910, where we're accounting for how much France wants to buy overall, what we see is that France buys systematically less from the countries that were more exposed to these bank failures relative to the countries that were less exposed. Why do you think that this had such long-lasting effects? So one reason is that it's just very expensive and difficult to establish an international trade relationship. And so the crisis meant that some of these relationships were disrupted. Buyers looked for another source to buy the things that they wanted to. And once they'd established this new relationship, they weren't going to switch back. As you think about your research, what strikes you as being implications of your research for today? So this research is about the effects of banking crises on trade patterns, but actually it's a little bit more generalizable than that because it's showing that any big change to trade costs can have long-term disruptions in who's buying from whom. And so 
we can think of large changes in tariffs as having the same sort of disruptive effects on the patterns of trade that I see historically. Say because of a trade war and retaliation. For example. Yeah, okay. Chenzi, thank you very much. Thank you. Before we go, I thought it might be helpful just to give one final summary of, of all the results. So we have back in 1866, the biggest financial crisis of the century. Uh, Banks in London were providing 90% of the world's trade finance. And this one banker's bank failing meant that 12% of those banks failed. And that had really, really big effects on trade. Places that lost their access to London-based finance saw their exports drop by 68% in a year. That's That's a big drop. And it took decades for the effects to go away. The crisis was in 1866, and Chen could still find effects in 1910. Amazing. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Chen Zhu at Stanford University for talking to us about her new research paper titled Reshaping Global Trade, the Immediate and Long-Run Effects of Bank Failures. You can find Chenzi's paper linked at the episode page of our website. That is www.tradetalkspodcast.com. Thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. 